welcome to Board Game Famous, the board game podcast that chronicles two brothers as they journey to board game fame. I'm your host, David, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. A new intro for a new season. Season two, baby. <laughs> I'm, I'm still surprised that we made it a year. That's, that's work ethic. That's determination that got us here. <laughs> hey, haven't given up on it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we start, as always, with, hey, Michael. What you been playing? I have had a pretty busy life recently, and I was able to make some time earlier today to get together with my usual board game group for a couple of games, and I'm not going to talk about all the games that we played, but the one that I wanted to talk about the most is we played Everdale, designed by James Wilson, but not only did we play Everdale, we played Everdale with Every single expansion that has been released up to this point, I believe there's one more coming out later this year. Two more on the way. I'm so excited. There are two more on the way. I believe we said in a previous podcast that Everdale already has a pretty big presence on the table. It takes up a lot of real estate. It has this tree that you set up. Uh, that is super easy to see across the entire store if you're playing in a store. <laughs> but then you throw on Belfair, Pearlbrook, Spirecrest, and Legends. We played with Legends. Well, all of the all of the expansions that you mentioned, except for Legends, adds onto the board. They all have their own sideboard. <laughs> yes, and. They all have these their own sideboard, and now you already take this game that takes up a lot of real estate, and now it's taking up a lot more real estate. And we could barely fit it on my friend's table in a four-player game because in this game you're you're forming a tableau, you're you're building a city with these cute woodland creatures and hiring, um, you know, attracting different uh, craftsmen and whatnot to your city. So not only does every expansion add a sideboard and the main board itself huge, each player needs a lot of room on their own for all the cards they're playing down. So I guess, you know, before, before I get into the description of what it's like, does the game work playing with all the expansions? Yes. Do you need to play with all the expansions? No. <laughs> well, not only, not only no... The designer explicitly, like, says, don't do this. <laughs> Did I have fun playing with all the expansions all at once? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> do I think it is a hindrance to play with all the expansions? No, I, I thought, to jump the gun a little bit, I thought that the, the different strategies that we were taking and the different mechanics worked pretty well together. And we ended up with pretty a pretty close scoreline there at the end of the game, so I didn't I didn't feel like uh, one expansion is is much better than the others. But uh, yeah, you know, my favorite thing about Everdale is the fact that it is and the the asymmetry to worker placement in because this is a worker placement game. Typically, in traditional worker placements. There's a round of placements and taking actions, and then there's a round of retrieving. This game takes place over four seasons, and at the end of each season, well, not actually at the end of each season, at the beginning of the next season, you retrieve your workers 
And so someone may go from winter to spring before other players. And so there's this little uh, asymmetry where some players may be in spring while others are in summer. And there's one guy that's already all the way up in autumn. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) it, it was... It was pretty pretty funny. I had only played with Pearl Brook before, which added a, an additional resource of uh, pearls, a special meeple which, to take special actions. I believe you said something about house ruling their ability, or am I yeah. So right? I, I I believe that that special meeple it's a frog, and it can only go to the sideboard actions that adds on for Pearl Brook. We house rule it that that frog can go anywhere to you know kind of jump start, jump start your turns a little bit because you're not gonna want to get a pearl first round usually. Usually, there could be an exception. Yeah, so all the different factions that you're playing with are different uh, species of woodland animals. So I was playing as the platypuses. Ooh. Uh, then we had rats, we had mice, and we had turtles. Then we also played with Spirecrest, which you know adds this nice little adventure thing that's going on. But uh, that's not my favorite part about it. It's the fact that you can get these larger animals that your small woodland creatures can ride. Right into battle nice... is what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, so you have your nice little woodland meeples. And then you have these big wooden figurines that have saddles that you can put on them that fit your... <laughs> it's it's pretty hilarious. Did I take those uh, just because I was going to get the big wooden block? Yes. Was it the best option? Probably not out of some <laughs> of the cards that I got. And then Belfair was also really nice. But I think it's interesting that all the expansions do their own little add their own little unique thing to the game. And so while the designer may say not to play with all of them, I don't think they detract from one another by playing with all of them. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit more about Belfair? Uh, So you mentioned, we've mentioned the sideboard for getting pearls for, for Pearl Brook and then the kind of like the adventure track for Spirecrest. What does Pearlbrook add? And I'm curious because not I'm sorry, not Pearlbrook. What does Belfair add? Because that's the only expansion I haven't played with. Alright. If so so I had not played Spirecrest and Belfair yet, and I'm trying to remember which one was which, but I believe Belfair added species specific abilities. So instead of just picking, oh, I want to be squirrels, oh, I want to be uh, platypuses or whatever, what we did is we shuffled all the different groups together, passed out two cards to each person. They looked at them. They saw it had the species at the top and a special ability. And so as the platypuses, I got uh, to start with five victory point coins on that card. And once per turn at any point during the turn I could discard one of those coins to gain any resource and draw a card. Hmm. So it and there are these different little abilities. Other than that it adds an interesting market which um I wish we could have played around with it a little bit more where you can get some resources for free and then that moves into the trading section and then you can trade those resources in for other resources for victory points and whatnot so 
and then it, it an interesting market plus some alternative victory point condition uh, opportunities. Okay. So yeah, it was it was pretty nice. Uh, it add, yeah, each of the different expansions add something different. That's something I like. You know, we're gonna talk about you know in our game of the Fortnite, the expansions don't necessarily do that many different things. Whereas I like how in this game it brings something new to the table, and so far I've been impressed with all three expansions. Okay. Oh, and Legends, which doesn't add a lot. It just adds special cards. Yeah, it just adds two special starting cards. Yeah, yeah, but they're a lot of fun, so. <laughs> did you end up winning? I, no, I did not. I, I did not end up winning. I, uh, I got 90-something points, and uh, the winner got 100-something points. Okay, so not a, not a huge spread. No. No, it was not a huge spread, but completely different strategies. A lot of fun. I want the critter route, so just common critters. <laughs> did you find that you had to go for for one thing or the other for example um pearlbrook replaces the common events in everdell which are things you can achieve by having three green cards in your tableau or i'm sorry that's a bad example having three blue cards in your tableau or having four green cards in your tableau and it replaces them with these huge monuments that cost a massive amount of resources did you find that you could try and go for one of those while also filling your adventure trail that you create you with Spirecrest? Or did you to or did the different strategies focus on essentially one expansion and was everybody playing with their own expansion? I I dipped my uh my fingers into all the different expansions. So I got one of the special events. I created an expedition from the Spirecrest expansion that I was able to fully complete successfully. And in the Pearl Brook, I uh, was able to generate pearls on a regular basis. Oh, and um, goodness, what what are the, what are the, there's these special cards that you can use your pearls as a resource to play. Oh, uh, adornments, I think they're called. Adornments, yes. Yes, that was... I like that addition. It gave another use for the pearls. Mm-hmm. Is that you... You know, pearls are the only resource that, uh, that are worth victory points at the end of the game. But uh, this also gave you another use, and I found that interesting. So I, I had an, a reason to play... Uh, to play into all the different expansions. It's not like we were playing into our own individual expansions. I think everybody dipped their hands into something a little bit. Okay, that's good. Because I, w- I wanted to make sure that it, there, there was a reason to mix all the expansions together, really. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think they're pretty uh, pretty well connected. I do I do like the adornments very well. They're, they're cute, and it adds additional victory point scoring opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I just kept falling into the trap of I'd get a, I'd get a building where uh, I already had the critter for it. So I was like, well, if I play this building, I'll be able to play the critter for free. So <laughs> <laughs> kept doing that over and over again. I think at least half the critters I had in my tableau, I were I was able to play for free. So yeah, you didn't pay for them. <laughs> no, no, not not one bit. But yeah, would recommend. If you have the space and somebody who has all the expansions, <laughs> give 
Everydale a try. <laughs> that's a that's a board game famous term. <laughs> Trademarked. Trademark. Everydale <laughs> playing Everdell with all the expansions. <laughs> and whenever more expansions come out, that's the new baseline for what Everydell is. <laughs> oh, that's a, there's gonna be five expansions all at once. <laughs> that's gonna be nuts. <laughs> yeah. So David, what have you been playing? I recently got to play two of my I don't know if they're they're I enjoy them. I like them a lot. They're I, I don't know if they're favorites. I don't know if like they're top ten material, but they are two of the games that I am the best at. Uh so one of them is Glass Road, designed by Uwe Rosenberg and currently published by Capstone Games. This is a hand management style game where everybody has the same hand of fifteen cards. Each round Players choose five of those cards to play in front of them as actions. So players have the same hand of 15 cards, and each round they choose five of them to hope to play in front of them. And the key word is hope, because you're only guaranteed to play three cards a round. But if somebody plays a card that is currently in your hand, you can play it down in front of you. Uh, you get to ruin their action a little bit, because each card has two actions. If nobody plays it, you get to do both. If somebody else plays it, everybody who plays the card only gets one of the actions on each card. And, oh, and the, so, so kind of like Broom Service? Where... It's very similar to Broom Service, yes. It's a little bit less punishing in Broom Service, because I could play a card in Broom Service, go brave, and then the next person goes brave and I get nothing. Whereas in Glass Road, I play this card, anybody plays it right then and there, and everybody gets one action. Everybody gets something off the card. It's, it had been a while since I've played this game. It's all about getting resources and building buildings and just scoring points. It's a very traditional Euro scoring game. But I find that the hand of cards is where the game is. It's all about looking at your opponent's board and figuring out what cards you think they're going to choose to slow them down and give you a little bit of a boost. And I find that mechanism incredibly fun now i did find out that i have and i've played this game dozens of times it's one of my favorites i don't actually own the capstone version i own an earlier printing from a different company so i've, I've had this game for five or six years i've been playing a rule wrong all those years one of the cards lets you reserve building tiles i thought it I thought it let you reserve building tiles from the offering, face-up building tiles, that you could choose. Supposed to draw them off the top of the deck. And we played by the correct rules this time, and I think I'm going to stick with my incorrect rule, you know? <laughs> Make it an official house rule, now that I know... Now that I know it's more fun the way that you had it in mind? I, I do. I do think it's more fun. Plus, it allows you to pick which buildings that you want, and you can pick buildings that strategize... Like and, and synergize together better. Everybody I was playing with disagreed because they said, no, that would be too powerful. Everybody here would hate draft, and I was aghast because I would never consider hate drafting. Here you are, being the nice board gamer again. Yeah, I just can't do it. I want everybody to have a good time. I can't be the person that makes sure everyone has a bad time. Which brings me my, to our next game that I played, which was Quantum. Uh, the game that I am the best at, and I don't I don't mean I'm the best person at playing it. No, I'm the number I'm number twenty in the world, but uh, 
it is the game that I personally am the best at playing. Quantum is designed by Eric Zimmerman and was published by Funforge Game. It is currently out of print. I believe the designer is looking for a way to publish it eco-friendly, and I really hope that he finds it, one, because that's a, uh, that's a good mission, trying to publish eco-friendly games, and two, it's a great game and should be in print. I think used copies go for like $60-75 right now. So, so it costs as much as a brand new copy would have. It costs more than a brand new copy would have. Well, yeah, yeah. thinking about, about it, it is... I mean, you can speak to it, but it is the very abstraction of of space combat. Oh yeah, it's just a it's an abstract strategy game through and through. You've got dice that represent your ships and the pips that are on the dice tell you a few things. It tells you how far the ship can move, how strong the ship is in combat, but most importantly it tells you what your ship's special ability is. And mastering the individual numbers special abilities is how you become good at the game. The higher on the, the higher the number on the die, the farther it can move, but the weaker it is in combat. Because when you move into the space uh, of an enemy's ship, you have combat and each player rolls a die and you add the number of your ship and the die value that you rolled, add them together and Whoever has the lower number wins. This game does have a little bit of luck in it, but it's all about positioning your ships correctly, attacking in opportune moments, and then upgrading your ships because you can get these upgrade cards through placing quantum cubes or researching to get powerful technologies that give you either boosts in combat or movement and just different aspects of the game. This is one of the few games that I like that is fairly aggressive. There is no downside to attacking. If you can attack, you should attack. And that is not not advice I give in every single board game. But there's just no downside. If you lose while attacking, nothing happens. If you lose while defending, your ship blows up and gets removed from the game board. Yeah, I think this is a well-designed game that... Uh, people should take the opportunity to play. Uh, it is currently available on Board Game Arena. Yeah, you can play it for free on Board Game Arena, and I highly recommend giving it a try there. Yeah, since you know it's out of print and uh, use copy is expensive, I think that's a good <laughs> good opportunity to try it out. Is it currently in the top 100? No, I don't know. I don't know if it was ever in the top 100. I think it's in the top 500 right now. Uh, it's just one of those games that, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to play you. Me playing <laughs> you is like <laughs> is like me trying to play uh, baseball against some professionals. <laughs> so when I said I was number 20, that's because I played a lot on Board Game Arena, and at one point I was actually ranked online the 20th best player of Quantum uh, based on based on my rating. I, I play it a lot. Uh, this this time I didn't go all out aggression uh, this at this play, but my neighbor had a bunch of low numbered ships and was heading towards me, and that's bad. He's going to destroy my armada, so I just just slipped outside of his range, 
So he decided to attack somebody else, and they were not happy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was intentional on my part. Like I said, I'm good at the game. I did this on purpose. I would hope I was hoping he would go the other way. But it's just it's just a really fun game trying to balance the numbers of your ships because I didn't actually I haven't actually talked about how you win the game. You win by placing all of your quantum cubes out on the board. So you're trying to expand your presence. And you do that by having ships around planets and planets have a certain number value on them. And the dies, the die value of all your dice surrounding that planet has to add up to exactly that number. And to achieve some of those numbers, you have to have higher valued ships. So that's a prime target for people to attack. But I'm experienced. I taught the game. I gave advice throughout the game, but I didn't go that easy on them. And <laughs> I ended up winning. Yeah, definitely, definitely an underrated game. Definitely an underrated game that not a lot of people have heard about. And and one of my favorites. Uh, you know, I just said it's not one of my favorites at the beginning of this. It's not top ten, but I mean, I, I think it's not top ten because I'm so good, people don't like to play me. Like you said. And now it's time for Game of the Fortnite. The part of the podcast where we hold one game above all others. At least for the next two weeks. And this Fortnite, our Game of the Fortnite, is... Carcassonne. Carcassonne is designed by Klaus Jürgen Vrede. Uh, Vrede, yep. Published by Hans Imruck. That didn't give it away. This game is from Germany! <laughs> it is. This game is one of the early games to come over from Germany to America. This one, This game wasn't the game that started off the Golden Age in America. But it certainly helped. It was published in 2000. So this was very early on in board gaming coming to America and really starting to take roots. By the time I played Carcassonne, this game was already old. Oh yeah, for sure. But I think Carcassonne is one of the original gateway games. I feel like there's quite a few games that are considered like the holy trinity i can't say holy trinity because there's way more than three uh it's it's one of the gateway games for sure because that you've got games like ticket to ride carcassonne Catan. these are all the games that you play when you first get into the hobby carcassonne is a tile laying game where everybody is laying placing their tiles into a communal area, growing the map in front of all the players. And you have little meeples that you're placing on on fixtures that are on those tiles, either placing them on roads or on a chapel or on a city to try and score the most points. And every, every item on a tile scores differently. Chapels score for every single tile that are, is around them. Roads score based on how long they are. Cities score based on how big they are. But you can fight over cities and try and own into edge into somebody else's city and score their points for a city that they've been building, not you. Ha it's, ha. It's incredibly easy. It's incredibly inviting to all players. On your turn, you play a tile, and then you pick up a new one. 
and then it comes back around to you in just a few seconds. You play a tile, you pick up a new one, and you look for the best opportunities to play your tile on your turn. And I think there's a fair amount of depth to the game, even with the simplicity of mechanics. Carcassonne is a real place, and it is a famous walled city in Europe. And so, like, you're saying that you're you're fighting on building these cities. Well, the rules is, you know, you're trying to make a singular uh, enclosed wall city. And so you can start building these cities as big as you like. But at some point, you got to close them off. And somebody might be starting to build a city over here. And someone might st- start over here and somewhere else on the map. And I realize I'm talking with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> this is an audio medium. <laughs> uh but yeah, so people might be building the start of a city. You know, it's open, so the walls are not a complete circle quite yet. You are able to snipe the city points by enclosing these two groups that people have been working on and scoring that entire thing for yourself. So. <laughs> I also have a bit of history lesson for Carcassonne. Did you know that Carcassonne is where we get the word meeple from? I did not know that. Meeples have become, I would say, ubiquitous throughout the hobby. You can't go into a board game store without seeing a meeple somewhere. Uh, You can't listen to our podcast without seeing a meeple. A meeple is part of our logo. It refers to the tiny wooden humanoid figure piece that you put out on the board and take back whenever you're scoring points that are throughout a ton of games in the hobby. So one of the one of the things I wanted to do for this podcast, I was at, I was brainstorming new segment ideas, and I wanted to give a little bit of a history lesson. So I was like, oh, it would be fun to learn about the history of the word meeple. And I went down a huge rabbit hole, and I'm currently writing a three-page long essay about the history of the word meeple. Uh, it does come from this game, but it wasn't from the designer themselves. It was from a woman named Allison Hansel, who kept referring to the wooden pieces as my people. And one time she just stuttered, referred to it as a meeple instead of my people. Everybody in the game group loved it and kept calling it, kept calling it meeple. The players that were playing that game were well-connected board gamers. And by that, I mean, they went to a board game convention known as the Gathering of Friends, which is an invite-only board game convention hosted by Spiel de Jahr's winner, Alan Moon. So he invited these people, uh, these players, to this convention with other influential board gamers, and they played Carcassonne there. And from there, it essentially spread. Did it ever end up in the rulebook, or is it just them playing Carcassonne the... uh the origin of the term that is an excellent question and at the gathering of friends is where jay tomlinson first heard the term meeple now jay tomlinson is was the director for rio grande games who at the time specialized in bringing over german board games to america and he got the rights to carcassonne to bring it over from hams and gluck so it's published in america by Rio Grande Games. And he first heard the term meeple there, so I think the sixth or seventh expansion they start referring to it as meeple. Because, Very nice. Because originally they're called followers. Ooh. Yeah. 
But I think meeple is just a is just a much better term. I got a history lesson for you. Did you know that Carcassonne is the 2001 Spiel des Jahres winner? Oh yes, I could tell you that. You found <laughs> that out during your research. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I I went deep down the rabbit hole. Did you know uh, that the Meeple Choice Award voted Carcassonne as its uh, choice in 2001 as the Meeple Choice Award for the year 2000? And that shows how quickly the word meeple spread. I mean, it's already a niche hobby, so... That's true. <laughs> and and back then, the hobby was even smaller. I was using the Wayback Machine to look at Board Game Geek as it was in the year 2000. Guess what? Board Game Geek started in the year 2000. So there were about maybe a thousand games on its database. Now... There's a hundred thousand. It's a hundred times larger than it was twenty years ago. <laughs> Very nice. That means ninety nine thousand games have been created in the past twenty years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so that that is a little bit off topic. But if you want to know more about it, uh, I will let everybody know once I actually publish my essay when I'm done. Um, and this involves interviewing the players at that game of Meeple. So I've been I've been reaching out to. I've been reaching out to the historically significant people who started Meeple, who who spread it out, and, and how it had avenues onto the internet and things like that. Now back to the game. <laughs> what are your personal feelings on Carcassonne? The board game, not the town. Uh, never been to the town, so that's that's easy. No 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 hard feelings on that one. My personal feelings on the board game Carcassonne. I tip pass when anybody asks me to play it because the problem I have with Carcassonne is when you draw a tile you play a tile draw a tile play a tile every turn if you're playing with the same group of people over and over and over which most game groups typically do they don't they don't mix up that often uh, you get into a kind of rhythm and everybody gets the same skill or the same skill within that group and if everybody's the same skill at that game, it just comes down to whoever draws the best tiles. That is my personal opinion about Carcassonne. What about you? I think that Carcassonne is a good game. Whenever it comes to tile placement, I much prefer the newer game, which came out in 2015, of Isle of Sky. Hmm. If you're looking for a good tile placement game, Isle of Sky uh, is a good alternative. Yeah, I would definitely agree that while it is not completely, it doesn't have the complete depth that I would like, it does have 1,000 expansions, if that's <laughs> something you're interested in. And they have made it helpful that you can buy big box editions that include some of these expansions. One of my biggest regrets is not picking it up from the thrift store. That we had, that we found a copy of Carcassonne Big Box with several expansions in it, and I, uh, I wasn't there. Ellen texted me about it, and by the time I got back to her, somebody else had grabbed it. And yeah, and I, even though I don't like the game that much, for the amount you get in that box at a thrift store, would be definitely worth it. My recommendation is it. It pioneered a lot. It has very good game feel. Ooh, <laughs> bringing back another another board game famous TM. 
there's just something satisfying about making long roads or making walled cities and all all that jazz mm-hmm. of creating a world. Is it something you need to have in your collection? No, because I don't think it has infinite replayability because it will ultimately lack mm-hmm. as much as I love building walled cities and roads and whatnot. I mean, hell, I grew up on uh, SimCity, so that's right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go over some pros of Carcassonne. It's incredibly easy to teach and play. It's very accessible. Like you said, it's there's, it's just satisfying to play it, to create long roads and and score I points think, with big cities. Yeah, I, I think I think this would be a good game for families that have you know I, I, I wanted to do just like like literally just list pros list cons and then would say who the game is for all right um, if that's okay with you pros it's got sheep on some of the tiles that's <laughs> does that count as like cute artwork i guess <laughs> this, this game is 22 years old it doesn't have the most modern of artwork but it's not it definitely aged better than a lot of other games from that era so i talked about how ugly and how unuser friendly the game Merchants of Amsterdam is the very same year. The distant future, the year 2000. The distant future, the year 2000. And Carcassonne uh, no, that... looks leagues above Merchants of Amsterdam. Yeah, the, art, the artwork aged a lot more gracefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then what would you say are some cons of Carcassonne? Like you said, the randomness of the tile drawing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's really the only problem I have with it. Make makes or breaks game. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely would recommend getting at least a couple expansions with this game. The the feeling of the base game not being the complete game. This it's it's my same feeling for Dominion. Is I can't recommend just Dominion. I'd have to recommend Dominion plus expansions. So <laughs> yeah. So so I don't have a problem with the game itself. It's just that it like. You've seen all the content with yeah. without the without the expansions. You see it pretty quick. That's uh, a good point. The, yeah, the expansions definitely help drive the the longevity of this game mm-hmm. for better or for worse. I would also recommend it for people who don't see themselves as gamers or people who think of board games as monopoly or risk and don't want to play a game because it's so long and time intensive and rules heavy. This would be a great introduction to them. But after all those questions, David, the most important question is, do you, David, give this the coveted board game famous Gold Star Award? Even though I don't care for the game and I usually pass on it, it's not the randomness that I have a problem with. It's if everybody's the exact same skill level, then the randomness becomes the problem. But if you are introducing this to new players and just teaching the game, it's great. It's it's so much fun to see them explore the mechanisms of Carcassonne. And the amount that it has done for the hobby. It has brought so many people into board gaming. It gave us the word meeple. It is historically significant to the point where I think I have to give Carcassonne the board game famous gold star. You know, whenever we do these Game of the Fortnites, out. How much should we weigh into the historical significance of these games? How much should we consider games that are decades old and there has been so much advancement 
in the industry, in the hobby, in terms of mechanisms and design and, and all that kind of stuff. Take a look back at these. It's still, it's still a good game. It is. And not only is it still a good game, it's still on board game shelves newly reprinted like you're not finding an old copy in your board game store you're going in seeing a brand new copy that was printed recently because it just it stays on the shelves people keep buying it so yeah i would give it the gold star award this is the first board game famous game of the fortnite that's gotten a gold star in a while from both of us i don't think i've had a bad time ever playing this game no i've never had a bad time playing i've had plenty of good times too (laughs) (laughs) and this next section is brother talk and this fortnight we're going to talk about micro games micro in size not necessarily in impact we're usually talking about big grandiose games we've talked about games that take all day and are literal weights that you can use to weight lift and get a good workout in. So so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the opposite end of the spectrum today, which is micro games. A micro game is a game that uses minimal components, very few cards, and it still gives you a fun experience. The kinds of games that you could fit, like a mid-sized purse, you know, games that travel easily and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I was going to say even smaller. Some some micro games just fit in your pocket. That's true. There are... Um, there are decent-sized pockets. Yeah, that's fair. There are a few companies out there that specialize in micro games, like Button Shy or Paco Game. They do... They, they That is all they do. The Paco Game series looks like a pack of of gum like it's sticks of gum and i have i have a few of that series i like i really enjoy the game lie which is a very portable card version of liar's dice i love throwing that in my pocket and playing it wherever i can i uh, play it at restaurants all the time play it played it on in line for a concert one time it's so portable so small so easy and that's and that's really the biggest benefit of micro games. You can put it in your pocket, and you can have a board game with you literally anywhere. What would you consider being the upper limit of a micro game? Mm. Honestly, I would I would say if I couldn't fit it in my pocket, it wouldn't be a micro game. Now, Love Letter can come in that nice velvet pouch, and I can fit that version in my pocket. Uh, some of them. Some of them come, some of the editions of Love Letter are like tarot-sized cards. So that that's a little pushing it. There's, I think the upper limit might be the Mint 10 series by Five Lab Games. Those are games that fit in what are, what look like Mint 10s, like an old Altoids Mint 10. And they fit the, all the entire game components in that. And just, you can shove those in your pockets and take them to play. Interesting. Would you consider Fake Artist Goes to New York a micro game? I'm actually using that right now to prop up my camera. Let's see if I can fit that in my pocket. There are some editions that are larger than my copy, so those editions wouldn't be. Oh yeah, yeah, that game easily fits in my pocket. I am glad it passes the David DeVos 
micro game test. <laughs> <laughs> it fit in my pocket. I guess I wouldn't say the upper limit is the Mint 10 series. It would be this copy of, of Fake Artist Goes to New York, published by Oink Games. They've got a lot of they got a lot of games in this box size. So there's a booming business for fitting good games in small packages. I was going to say Fate Cardus Goes to New York is probably my favorite micro game. You know, it's your classic. There is a quote-unquote traitor or somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Doesn't mm-hmm. belong. Yeah. But I, I like the fact that everybody there is creating a canvas, except for the one person who doesn't know what they're supposed to be creating. And they're adding lines to this art piece but I'm glad the designers didn't choose to go with a massive size piece of paper, that, but the size that they chose is pretty modest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a the great thing game. The the most space is the markers, honestly. <laughs> or <laughs> or the, uh, the hint cards. The hint cards. It's on, honestly, you could just use pieces of paper, scraps of paper. I would think, I think my favorite micro game is Mintworks. That's what it's called. Uh, by Five Lab Games. It's one of those Mint 10 series. Uh, it is a worker placement game that fits in your pocket, which I think is incredible. And I have taken that on airplanes and played on the the fold-out tray in front of me. I've played it solo that way, and I think it's a lot of fun. With the success of micro games, there have been other board games that have tried to shrink down to a micro game size. Uh, so there's a series called Tiny Epic, they're the tiny. It's the tiny epic games from Gamelin Games. They've got Tiny Epic Galaxies is probably their biggest one, but there's Tiny Epic Defenders, Tiny Epic Zombies, Vikings, Pirates, Ninjas, pretty much anything you can think of. There's a Tiny Epic game based on it. They have released Ultra Tiny Epic Galaxies, which looks like it fits in a single pack of cards, but it's the same game, just shrunk down just a little bit more to meet that micro game requirement. Another game that we've played recently is Colt Express. You can get Ultra Colt Express that replaces the train with cards. So you could show where you are on the train just with a deck of cards. Do they also have uh, card cactuses to spread out from? You know, I don't know. I haven't played the I haven't played the tiny version of Colt, Colt Express. <laughs> But that is that is a game I like, so I think not because I think it is the uh, the greatest board game, but I just think it's a silly, fun board game. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think Colt Express is one of the more interesting "quote unquote" programming board games. Mm. I haven't played too many of those, but the Colt Express is a good one. I, yeah, yeah. I think that just the main benefit of of micro games is it allows you to take a game wherever you want, and you can take them to the bar. Played plenty of plenty of micro games at bars. I mean, I used to travel around with a, a copy of The Mind. I don't have a lot of these micro micro games you're, that you're mm-hmm. talking about on the smaller size, but these uh, games that travel well, I may have to repurpose them from the original box. Mm-hmm. That is a semi common theme, <laughs> uh, like but The Mind. You know, cl- classic cooperative game of counting without talking. <laughs> I think I just undersold that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, that's exactly what it is. It's counting without talking. <laughs> a lot of board games have big boxes, either because they have a lot of components or they're trying to have that presence on the shelf 
for being purchased. Having shelf presence is a way to get good way to get purchased. So there's often times a lot of wasted space inside of these boxes. These smaller games that have less components are foregoing design philosophy and just packaging every limited number of components in just enough size. They don't need to have all this extra space for shelf presence and all that kind of stuff. And I think something that goes hand in hand with that is because it doesn't have all those components, because it's really pared down, there's not a lot of rules. So they're very approachable. They're, they're something that you can play with just about anyone. But they're also, they also have to be good to become popular. So they are few rules, but the rules that are there provide for a good time, a nice, structured, quick game. I don't think I've heard of a legacy micro game yet. But, uh, <laughs> How could you have a legacy? But you rip up one card that's like twenty percent of the game. <laughs> <laughs> if someone can figure out how to make a legacy micro game, you might have figured it out. <laughs> Do you want you want Gloomhaven Mini? Is that what you're trying to get? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now it's time for mail time, the part of the podcast where we answer questions from listeners like you. And the question of this fortnight is, do you see a time where you won't be playing board games? No. <laughs> <laughs> but to elaborate on that is, according to our mom, we have been playing board games since we have been uh, wee lads. Small. I don't think our mom sounds like that. <laughs> Paraphrasing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, playing games such as uh, Candyland, High Ho Cheerios. Oh yeah, um, classic. That one's a banger. <laughs> absolute banger. I guess that shark fishing game, that's probably a board game. I guess that would count the, for a little kid, yeah. The fishing game, Hungry Hungry Hippos, that's a board game. <laughs> <laughs> have we stopped since then? No. Have we changed the kinds of games that we have played? Absolutely. Your tastes change, but... I have been playing quote-unquote modern board games for over a decade now, and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. A lot of my core friendships have started because of board gaming. Do I need all my friends to be board gamers? No. <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely not. I do appreciate that our family plays a lot of board games over the holidays every time we get together. I think mm. <laughs> that is something that's fun. I imagine that we'll still be playing Nevermore 30 years from now. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to buy a couple new copies to stockpile. <laughs> because your original copy is getting kind of worn out. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's been a part of my life, at least, for as long as I can remember. Is there a point? Yeah, I mean, all good things come to an end. Maybe it's maybe it's when I die. It's when I stop playing board games. Oh my god. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> I've seen that thing where you can play a game with the Grim Reaper, and that's to get more life. Maybe that's... Yeah, I guess that's fair. <laughs> as far as I can tell, no, there is no board game end game. Oh, I like that. No board game end game. My life is the legacy game of board gaming. <laughs> And what about you, David? Do I see a time where I, where you won't be playing board games? I can, I could see scenarios where I'm not uh, playing board games, but I don't see like 
oh, I don't see myself ever swearing off board games forever. Yeah, you know, like you said, it's it's such a big part of big part of my life. Uh, most of my friendships have been founded through board games. When I was at a board game convention, when I was at Geekway, we were talking with somebody new. Uh, my friend Aaron was there, and he said, "Like, oh, I've heard, yeah, I played quite a few board games. Uh, I, I heard about this convention one year, and I just started coming. And then he looked at me and goes, now David here, you pretty much have to like board games to be his friend. And I was like, that's not, not totally true. But if you, are my, <laughs> if, if you are my friend, you will be playing board games. <laughs> I think board games are such a significant part of my life. I've been thinking about getting some board game tattoos. I thought it would be kind of cool to do a uh, a hex pattern sleeve right here. And, and each hex has stuff that signify important board games to me. Like a meeple for Carcassonne. Like a meeple for Carcassonne. <laughs> or I would do the symbol for permanence in Time Stories. Because that was the first game Ellen ever said, let's play again right afterwards. And we've, we've loved it ever since. I was thinking about, I, this one might be too hard to do, but I thought it'd be cool to do like a scythe hex, like get the terrain recreated on one of them. And it just, I think, I think it would be neat. Unfortunately, my line of work frowns on the tattoos right now. <laughs> but you know what? My job won't be permanent. <laughs> You're also work from home, so. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And if you're worried about it, you can just get it on your butt. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Board Game Famous. If you have any comments or questions for us to answer, please email us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us on Discord using the link below. Or you can even DM us on Instagram using the link below. See you in another fortnight. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.